I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. And I'd like to ask you to stand as we read one very famous verse. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word in a country that is free to do so. We are grateful, Lord, this morning for a new year, a new decade, a new time, and a new season. We thank you, Father, that in this season of time we will hear from you and that you, by the providence of your sovereign will, you will speak mightily to each of us who has ears to hear. And we would pray that all in this room and all within earshot in terms of those that are watching online and whatever else, we ask God just for you to open ears and hearts and minds. We thank you for our brother Rawl and the team that is in Mexico today and trends at home. We ask for their safe return. We ask for a great season there, Lord. We ask for those that have been ministered to, Lord, that they would be drawn to you and that they would love you more as a result of seeing those faces, but that, Lord, you would bring those faces home quickly. We ask now that you would anoint your word, you would anoint our hearts, and that you would do all that you desire to do in this time in Jesus' name. Everybody agreeing said, amen. amen. You may be seated. John chapter 3 is an incredibly enlightening text regarding the pivotal Christian doctrine of regeneration. The scene opens upon a clandestine evening, evening meeting between a Jewish leader, a prominent Jewish leader of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus. Yes, it is the original, Nick at night. <clears throat> We're all mentioned love. I, I just, I got to reinforce that here. That's okay. There we go. That's better. There we go. Okay. Nicodemus has come with questions and is seeking to discover the truth regarding the kingdom of God, something that he believes will be fulfilled imminently. In Jewish thinking, two of the three conditions for the kingdom's arrival were in place. The Jews had been reestablished in their homeland, even though they were currently occupied by Rome. They'd also been experiencing a bit of a revival in Bible teaching as the Pharisees led a nationwide effort in synagogue teaching of the Torah. All that remained in Nicodemus' mind was the final promise of God. The kingdom of God, he believed, would be ushered in and brought into a prominent place politically as the Messiah sat upon the throne of the kingdom of God, ruling over the nations from Jerusalem. Jesus stops Nicodemus cold and reveals that he's wrong about the kingdom of God. He begins by teaching Nicodemus what a person must do to enter the kingdom of God. He tells Nicodemus and you and I the same essential truth. In order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must experience 
regeneration. John 3 verse 3. Just as each of you were born in a fleshly or human way, you must also experience a spiritual birth. God must endow you with his own life. Moses has commented upon this at the end of his ministry. He tells the people to that very day they had not been given a heart to understand, to comprehend. That is why they were constantly frustrating the covenant of God by their disobedience. They lacked the engine to be able to obey the Lord. God later promised through Ezekiel that he would give the nation a heart that would issue in their ability to trust and obey. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 36. Now this leads Jesus to his second point, to Nicodemus. The first being what a person must do to enter the kingdom of God. The second, he explains how a person experiences the new birth. Jesus asserts that it's not related to works of righteousness that a person does, but is a work of God's Spirit alone. God's spirit sovereignly decides to move in a person's life. And while his presence is invisible, his effect is seen quite clearly, as is true with the sound of the wind, John 3, 7 and 8. Now, Nicodemus is still shocked. He thought that just by being a person of Jewish descent and being the teacher, in Israel, that he would have been a shoe in How could it be said to him, of all people, that he must do something still to enter the kingdom of God? And that's when Jesus lays out his third point. And that's related to when a person experiences the new birth. Jesus reminds Nicodemus of a crazy story. In Numbers chapter 21. I would suggest that this would be a great afternoon read for you. Before you watch some football this afternoon. Numbers 21. Now the people of Israel complained against the Lord. Their leader and the bread that God provided them. Now that's not the crazy part. That's actually the normal part. That was their habit. The crazy part came next. In response, God released fiery serpents that bit and were responsible for killing many of the people of God. Writhing in pain, in great fear for their lives, they asked Moses to pray to the Lord. And the Lord gave Moses the single cure for their malady. And that was to fabricate a bronze serpent upon a bronze pole and set it up in the midst of the camp for all to see. Those that looked lived. It was that simple. Those that looked upon the icon on the bronze pole lived. Jesus was telling Nicodemus that Israel would have to look in faith to him as he was lifted up, a euphemism, a polite way to speak of crucifixion. John 3, 14 and 15. When a person puts their whole weight upon the promise of God contained in the person of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice upon the cross, he or she experiences the new birth. 
That leaves us with our final consideration. And the Lord's fourth point to Nicodemus. And that is why anyone receives the new birth. You might be asking, as maybe Nicodemus was, why does God act this way toward people? Why is he compelled to move in this manner toward humanity? We'll note first the love of God. Turn with me again, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we could take a lifetime to unpack and appreciate this wonderful verse and not scratch the surface. Toward that end, we will be extending service till about 4 p.m. today. (laughs) Some have called this, and by some I mean me, uh, the Bible's message in a single verse. As such, I believe that the Holy Spirit has made it so that it is also the best known verse on the planet. If you've ever watched a football game or been to In-N-Out, You've seen the call sign in the end zone or the bottom of your cup. You'll see it on electrical poles in the middle of the desert, in graffiti all over Colton. I'm fairly certain that's some of my, <laughs> some of my congregants. But in any event, there's graffiti of it everywhere. In fact, uh, not too long ago, my wife and I were leading our children, uh, very similar. We have three teens, so it's sort of like herding cats. And we were going to go get a family picture and we were up in the middle of Cherry Valley or Beaumont, somewhere up there where there's a lot of open space. And we were going to go take our picture. And right as I was reading that verse, we were driving by a brick wall, a newly constrict, uh, constructed brick wall, with John 3.16 randomly right on the wall. I thought, man, this is a confirmation of how this passage needs to be spoken. It was everywhere. It's hard to imagine that this was once said privately to a curious Jewish leader late in the evening. Jesus explains to him that the new birth, regeneration, issues from God's love. God is overcome by love for humanity. It is his love which initiates, sustains, and completes the process by which men are born again. Salvation, which does not begin with God, is not likely to end with Him either. His love is centered, focused upon the world. It's that same world that hates Him and opposes His decrees and laws. It's The world that's dominated by its philosophy of self-superiority. It's that world that God so loves. He loves them while they hate Him. This is the essence of how agape love acts. It does not require something to be lovely or deserving. It expresses itself in full commitment To the object's best interest. That's the love that God operates in. And that's the love that he gives to those who love him exclusively. I wonder if you've ever wondered 
how it is that somebody in the Christian community can love the unlovable. First of all, they know they themselves were also unlovable. Some of you seem so very clean and holy now, but when you started out and God showed you his love, you were not the way you are today. Some of you would never have come into this church. You would have driven past it. You'd have thrown eggs at it. You would have, you would have been completely away from it. And you thought every Christian you thought you knew was a total dork and you didn't want to be around them and you didn't want to be known like one of them. And then God changed your heart. He showed you his love. And before you knew it, you were loving people that you never would have thought you could have loved in the past. His love operates in us through regeneration. There's not a man or woman on earth that can claim that God has not loved them. And how was that love expressed? Take a look. What value was assigned to it? God expressed His love by offering His only, His unique, His begotten, monogenetic Son. And this is not a theoretical romantic potential act of love on God's part toward the world. There is a tangible, historical, demonstrable event that proves once and for all that God loves the world. Far beyond the borders of Israel, God has set His sights upon the earth. Christ is the Messiah of Israel. But he is simultaneously the savior of the world. God delivered Christ to this God-hating world to be the focal point of man's redemption. The one that is endowed with the same genes as the father himself, completely unique. When something is unique, one of a kind, its value is priceless. You cannot replace it. The life of Jesus Christ is what God the Father determined to be the sole value equal to the sin debt of the world, past, present, and future. All God requires then, and this is so vital for all of us to recall, because we get ourselves tripped up quite a bit. We, we like to put the cart in front of the horse. I don't ever understand what that means, really. I've never had a horse. I've never had a cart. I don't know what that... I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that what that means is you put something in front that doesn't quite move and have a motor. You want to have the horse in front so that it carries the cart, right? I'm fairly certain that's how that works. And we like to say if someone wants to be saved, well, they've got to go do this, 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 and this first they got to stop this. And you fill in the sin because all of us, we all have our own idea of what's a really horrible sin and what's just sort of bad. It's just not a good habit. Sin. So we'll put up our idea about like, okay, well, you got to stop doing this, that. No, no, no. You have to believe in Jesus. And then everything else takes care of itself. Everything else will all of a sudden, over time, be taken care of. So all that God requires of men then is that they believe upon Jesus. John is going to use this word over and over again in the Gospel of John. So it's very important that we have a 
proper, a, a proper definition of what he means when he says it. Belief is not merely mental assent or agreement to a group of facts. Do you realize that I could ask any Joe Schmo, and by the way, if your name is Joe Schmo, no, no insult intended toward you, but I can ask anybody out there what happened at Easter time, and they can parrot to you all of the facts, probably as well as any Christian. They've seen the movies, they've listened to sermons, they know enough. It's not just about agreement to the facts, though those are certainly involved. These are parts of it, but it's what it leads a person to. When John uses the word believe, he is speaking of having confidence in. And that, given the tense of the verb, is a present reality. So it should be read in your Bible like this. You would hear it this way if you could hear it in the original language. That whoever is believing, I am currently believing in Christ. I didn't start believing in Christ and then turn to how good I am. Okay, I believed in you, Jesus. You got me in the kingdom and now I trust in my works. Now I believe that somehow you've cleaned me up, you got me started, and now I have to kind of trust in my own ability to get this thing going. Well, that's not the way it works. It's the one who is believing. In fact, let me tell you this. What you will realize if you're a true believer, what you will realize is that as you get older, you don't get any better you realize I am more of a wretch than I was before. I'm more of a wretch now than I was when I first came to Jesus. Some of you are going, why are we listening to you? We should be up there. I don't blame you. I understand. You are more depressed by your own soul's condition as you are exposed to the light. And you're so much more thankful for the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's a true believer. So I am now trusting in, putting my confidence in, believing exclusively in Jesus Christ. It's the same way you did with the chairs. I saw many of you walk in. And some of you walked right in and you plopped down on that chair as if it was going to hold your weight. You didn't examine it. You didn't ask anybody if OSHA has been in here to check the actual structure of those chairs. You didn't, you didn't put anything on it first to test it. You just sat on down. That's the confidence that we put in Christ. Those that are believing in Him. That are trusting in Him. And what's the result? That you would not perish. Understand that the word perish does not mean to die. There are worse things in this God-created universe than dying. Sometimes it's living in a condition in which your body cannot respond to your mind. The word perish speaks of absolute destruction and ruin. What do I think of ruin and destruction? Well, I'm a person of limited means and limited imagination. I can only think of a few ways to ruin and destroy a person. And I've thought of them. I won't lie. I'm a Laker fan, so I think of that for the Celtics every day. 
Every day I'm thinking against the Celtics. What might that concept, though, mean to God? What does an all-powerful, creative being do with the concept of ruin and destruction? Teaching his disciples not to fear the growing threat of the Pharisees, Jesus says this, Luke chapter 12, verse 4, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Now, let me ask you this from another direction. None of you seem to be very impressed. What does it tell you about perishing when God offers something that he values more than anything to keep you from it? How awful is that reality? God sent Jesus to stand, to stand between man and that destiny. If God had not sent Jesus, that would be every man's destiny because that's what our sinful actions require from Him, those actions against us. But God's love opens up a new off-ramp and His Spirit beckons each of us to believe. But notice, not all... Not all will avoid perishing in these last few years. It's been a very popular teaching to say that God's love wins. That after we die, God will continue to give options and and He'll continue to try to get somebody to come to Him so that no one perishes. Apparently, Jesus did not know about that teaching. He did not know that book was going to be written. Because he says, there are some who will perish. When a person espouses a doctrine of limited atonement, I'm sure you've heard that in certain camps in Christendom, this is the only place where that limitation could properly be defined. A person's destiny hinges upon their response to Jesus Christ. And only those who believe upon him will pass from perishing to the possession of eternal life. And that's when the new birth begins. That's what it commences. Right now, if you have believed upon Jesus Christ, if you are believing in Him, you are trusting in Him, and He has all of your confidence, you already right now have eternal life. Some of you are going, well, I want my money back (laughs) because this is not as great as it sounds. And it is true that someday you and I will be able to enjoy this eternal life far more than our bodies can handle it now because our bodies are not handling it very well now. Our bodies are anchored to this earth. This body is getting older. There's nowhere I can go in the house where I can go stealthily. My body is creaking in ways I've never heard before. I would never make a good spy. Every, my knee is buckling. My, you know, it's awful. Last, came, last time I came and, and, and taught here, that morning, I threw out my back. 
with a sneeze. I mean, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at, friends. I sat up here on three Advil. Blacking out half the time. I, I hope it's not, I hope that message is not recorded. But you have eternal life now. It is ageless. I remember hearing a pastor once explain it to me. It is beyond the horizon lines. When I was a kid, I used to sit out at Corona Del Mar Beach. It's my favorite beach in the world. I call it God's beach, even though I know I've been there several times like that. It seems as though it's the other guy's beach. But anyway, I remember as a kid, I was sitting out there looking out the horizon line, always wondering, what's beyond that? What's beyond that point where I can see? It's a great picture of eternal life. Now, let me replay this in another way for you. This is a message I use whenever I'm asked to go to a funeral, whenever I'm asked to be at a graveside. I call it my greatest message. I'd like to share it with you. For God, the greatest being, so loved, the greatest motive, the world, the greatest stage that he gave the greatest demonstration his only begotten son the greatest person that whoever believes in him the greatest offer should not perish the greatest threat but have everlasting life the greatest gift is that not the greatest message you've ever heard In verse 16, we made note of the love of God that motivated the new birth. There was nothing in you that drew him to you as if you were special. He just loved. He showed his love to you. You didn't do anything that motivated him other than his love was motivated to act toward you. But as we move into verse 17, we see clearly the need of man. Take a look at verse 17 with me. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. I remind you that Nicodemus believes that all the conditions are ripe for God to raise Messiah to be the king of Israel. The Jewish nation at the time could not comprehend or reconcile the two distinct comings of the Messiah. Israel generally looked upon the suffering of Messiah as an allegory. In other words, they believed that the Messiah suffered vicariously through the nation's woes. In Nicodemus's mind, this was the time for God to judge the world through the king. So what a shock then to hear the presumptive Messiah say that that wasn't what he was going to do at all. He wasn't there to condemn the world. He was here to save the world. This is confusing on a few levels, but it's cleared up with one statement. Jesus did not need to come to earth to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. The verdict is in. Every person that has ever lived by virtue of being born to human parents 
is already a condemned sinner in the sight of God. God did not need to send Jesus to render that judgment. He came so that condemned men would have a single vehicle through which to receive salvation. Notice that phrase that Jesus uses. The world, if it will be saved, will be saved through him exclusively. Jesus is the exclusive means by which a person can be saved. There's no other offer on the table. And there's no other God-appointed or approved vehicle of God's salvation. At his first coming, Christ is the Savior of humanity. At his second coming, Christ is the judge of humanity, the living and the dead. And how will that be decided? Again, Jesus is the focus. A person who is presently believing upon Christ is not now, nor is he ever condemned. Now, are you not reminded of the Apostle Paul's words that sound as if they were peeled from this very scripture? Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who are putting their trust in Him, those who lean their full weight upon Christ, are not, will not, and will never be condemned. The same cannot be said of the unbeliever. The unbeliever that lives next to you, The unbeliever that works with you. The unbeliever that is your cousin, twice removed. He who is not believing is condemned already. Why are they presently condemned? Is it because of their horrible sins? Lying, swearing, stealing, being a Celtic fan? Is it any of those things? No. All those actions, all those sins stem from from one root cause. To not believe upon the name of Jesus. Nobody is going to hell or has been in hell because they were wretched sinners. Each person on earth is a wretched sinner and the person in hell is the one who has refused to let Christ be his payment. They refuse to put their trust in Christ. And because of that, do you know, have you seen it? It looks like, it looks wonderful on the outside. You walk around, you you drive past their house and they have a better house than you. They have a nicer car than you. Whatever it might be. They have a better job. They have a better reputation. And they look like they have it all. But they languish in this life. They don't know where to turn when you hear news of, Somebody bombing somebody and somebody retaliating. The things that we're hearing in the news today, wars and rumors of wars. Something Jesus said would happen in the last days. No surprise. No surprise that Iran and Russia and China are all aligned. Just like the Bible says it would happen. Anybody who's a believer in Christ doesn't see a surprising event rising He sees something that's been predicted since Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38. 
But the person in the world has no way to comprehend the fear in their hearts, the fear in their lives. They languish in this life, reeling in their sinful stupor, awaiting the day when their sins will demand a full and justified payment. Now, it is hard for me to imagine why a person would refuse to trust in Christ, especially given the threat that stands over them of eternal conscious punishment away from the favorable presence of God. Some will attempt to offer their excuses, while others will offer some works of value to God. But let me ask you something. What could you possibly offer to God that would be equal to His own Son? If you had this life, every waking moment, and you did good works in this life, how many could you possibly do that would equal what he has done? Now you have friends, as I do, who believe that they are on that program with God. I go to the gym and there's several people I've talked to and they play it out in one way or another regardless of their religion. Every religion beside Christianity teaches the same thing. I am going to give God my works and my good will outweigh my bad. That is the prevailing philosophy of every religion on earth. Name them something else. They have a different spin. They have a different God, whatever it might be. But that's the prevailing idea that you are wrestling against. So what could you do in a whole lifetime if you did everything, every moment? It was a perfect motive, perfect work. How much could you possibly do that would equal what Christ has done? Friend, let me tell you so that you can tell them that you would need a million lifetimes to match up to an ounce of the righteousness of Christ. He has more righteousness in his pinky than you would have in all your lifetimes if you had more than one and you don't. And don't tell me. Don't tell me that every minute of your life is not motivated by your own interest. even when we're Christians. I get up early not so much to pray, but to have coffee so that I could pray for you. (laughs) This message without coffee would be awful. I wouldn't want to hear it. I never counsel anyone without coffee. They come in, whatever their their issue is, (laughs) it's over. Whatever you have going on, it's over. No coffee, forget it. You're done. Coffee, I believe Jesus will do anything. There is nothing on this planet, nothing that you can do. And you will tell your friends if you love them like Jesus does. Friend, you don't have what it takes to offer something that would match the matchless life and righteousness of Jesus. Because then Jesus 
would not have had to go to the cross. What did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if there is another way, let this cup pass before me. How did that end for him? I guess there isn't another way. Or else he would have taken it. Why would a person not believe in Jesus? Why would they not turn to trust him? Well, this leads to our third point in regeneration. We've seen the love of God for man. God's love for you motivated him to act in the way that he does. Your need, the need of man, was desperate. But the third purpose of God in regeneration provides the clarity of judgment. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. This is the judgment of God. This is how a person discerns whether or not they are in the light or in darkness. Regeneration, believe it or not, in some people, in our existence, brings about a profound contrast. I'll explain this momentarily, but specifically, Jesus has manifested God's righteousness. He has embodied God's righteousness. And at that time, men preferred to remain in darkness over the light because what they did was evil. Their actions were wicked and hurtful to others. They loved that. They practiced that. And as such, are not neutral, but are haters of the light. Biblically speaking, there are no neutral people. And many of us are so kind and loving that we are willing to transgress biblical definitions. The psalmist, quoted by Paul in the book of Romans, says, There are none who do good. No, not one. There are none who are seeking How many of us are using those phrases when we talk about people in our lives that are just kind of meandering through spiritual life? Unbiblical definitions. Because God says of them, there are none who are good and none who are seeking. They are not neutral. Those who are practicing evil know the nature of their deeds. This is why you don't have people getting on Facebook and saying, I'm about to go rob a house. Would you pray for me? (laughs) I'm going to go. Don't worry. I'm going to leave them a note that God, he allows everything to happen for good. (laughs) And these are just possessions that are going to burn anyway. There's a reason why people do things in the dark. Because they know it's wicked. They know it's wrong. And they go away from the light. Otherwise, they would be rebuked by that light. That's what the word exposed means. That means they will face 
conviction. They will be ashamed. They will be found at fault. And nobody outside of Christ wants that. They want to be the arbiter of their own souls. They want to justify all of their behaviors and make you believe as if what they are saying about their behavior is actually true. They want to put their own spin on their sin. A person who refuses to believe in Christ is not doing so because there's no evidence or because of an intellectual objection. They have a moral objection. A person who refuses to come to Christ understands that they will have to surrender the things that they love for something that loves them more. They will have to hate their deeds of darkness as God hates them. They'll have to look at all the things that they do now and they will have to view them in light of Christ and they don't want to. They don't want to give that up. It always reminds me of Mrs. Lot. We don't know her name. Lot's wife. That's all we can get out. Jesus gives the second best Bible memorization verse there is. In the book of Luke, remember Lot's wife. First one is Jesus wept. The second is three word, remember Lot's wife. Who, when the judgment came, she couldn't turn back from her cookware in her awesome kitchen that was redone by Joanna Gaines uh, and the fixer-upper that she had there in Sodom. She can't, she can't give that up. Her open concept kitchen and all the things that she has, she can't turn around long enough to go and run the other way. And she turns to a pillar of salt. The world, they love what they are doing. And they don't want to see their life in light of what God thinks of it. Thinking that what they have is greater and more enjoyable and more satisfying than what Jesus could offer. They're running from the light and hoping to avoid its gaze landing upon them. And that lasts until their final day when their death opens the door to their destiny of acknowledging Christ's worth while suffering apart from the presence of God in hell eternally. And that is something that I hope hits you so deeply and so profoundly this morning. There are those that you love that will be separated from God forever by their own choices today. Here in this new year. This next Saturday, I'll be doing a funeral for a brother in our fellowship who passed just recently. And he loved the Lord, and and I know I'm going to see him again. And next time I see him, he's going to have washboard abs and uh, he's going to look pretty good, you know, give up his dad bod, and he's going to have the real thing up there and be able to see his feet for the first time. I mean, he's just, you know, he's going to be very, very pleased with what he has, and I'm going to see him again. But there are some who are going to pass in my life that I will never see again. And could this be the year that that happens? In your life, Could it be the year that you have, this is the final opportunities that you have to share the truth with those that you love? 
And this world loves to tell us that there's nothing wrong and that God accepts everybody the way that they are and that if we're just really sincere, that everybody's going to get there. That's not what the Bible teaches. And if you believe that, you are believing a lie. You have no basis to live that way. And it's not just foolish for you. It's dangerous for those you love. But notice the contrast. There's one who runs from the truth. There's one who lives by the truth. There's a person who does the truth. The man who is acting presently and repeatedly according to Christ's word, according to the truth, comes to the light and does the truth. And what is the truth? Well, first of all, this person embraces the truth about himself. He knows that he's a condemned sinner because of his own sin. And he has nothing to offer God except to come as a trophy of his grace. He looks upon the truth, Jesus Christ, and bows his knee to him now in confession, not concession. Do you understand the difference? The Bible tells us, That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because it will be obvious. In hell, they will have to concede that this is the truth. In heaven, we will have been confessing the truth and rejoicing in it. And this man, not only does he embrace the truth about himself, not only does he look to the truth in Jesus, but he also looks at the light of God's truth, the word, and he lives by it. Why? So that he can be clearly seen. The word speaks of making something appear to make it actual or visible. I'd even use the word obvious. It is obvious about the person who is in the light that they are in the light. There's something about them that that cannot be hidden. You see on their face and in their actions that they are something different than the world. A person who is always doing the truth, always coming to the light, making it obvious to the world that something's been done in their heart, that is a person who is born again. In other words, it becomes clear to the world that God is working through men that have come to the light. And these men have no fear of exposure. Rather, in their activity, they expose the reality of their relationship to God, and thus all men that they encounter have the ability to consider their state before God. Let me illustrate what I mean, because I'm seeing a lot of confused faces, which isn't abnormal. That's the way it usually goes for me about this time in every message. My wife's looking at me like, you've got to make sense, or else they won't ask you to come back again. I understand. <laughs> we used to live in uh, Ladera Ranch, California. Some of you have heard of that place. Some of you have not. But it, it was one of the safest places in the world. I would say I was the most dangerous man in Ladera because nothing bad happened there. Uh, but it's a new subset. It's kind of in between Mission Viejo and Liso Viejo. We were ministering there uh, for some time down in Irvine. I was going to a mechanic. I was taking my... Toyota 
this Toyota in about a year was going to be worth, over the phone, $500 as a trade-in. When I got there and turned it in, it was worth $200. <laughs> and that was with all the change left inside of it. Okay? So I'm going to this mechanic. He's of Persian descent. I've been going for quite a while. There's several things that are going wrong with the car as it had aged and whatever else. And I'm sitting there, flip-flops, T-shirt, shorts, middle of summer. And we're just talking. He offers me tea. I don't like tea, but I drink it anyway. And we're having this conversation. I tell him I'm a pastor. And he starts to talk about all the pastors that misuse church's finances for, you know, the cars that they drive and the houses that they live in and the bank accounts that they have. And I'm drinking my tea, and I, I put it down. I'm all, well, that's true. There are a lot of people who do that. Can I ask you something? Would you categorize my Toyota as a nice car? Uh, and he got kind of got uncomfortable. Because <laughs> he had to answer, no, this is not a nice car. <laughs> do I look like someone who is taking a lot of money from the church? As he looked at me a little bit more ashamed, like, no, you look like a hobo. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. You look like you just got out of bed. Um, I was the antithesis. I was the contrast. Because I loved Jesus not for what he gave me, but for what he made me. I provided the contrast to what he thought was real. You do the same thing. You reveal that this judgment that God has made over life is not something in the future. It's happening now. You are showing that there is a reality to believing in Jesus. And when they see your life and they see the contrast, there's clarity in judgment. They know something real has happened because they look at you and they go, there's no other explanation than Jesus has come into this life. I can't explain how people have become what they have become. But if they know Jesus, ah, that's how. You've seen it, right? You're in the store. Somebody is just by you, and you can tell by their face. There's something different about them, and when they speak, they speak differently. And somehow through the conversation, you find out they're a Christian, and you're like, yep, I knew. And no one's ever guessed that about me, but I'm waiting. I'm hoping someday I will be that guy. If I am continually running from the light, hoping to escape the sentence of God, I'm doomed. But if I'm continually running to the light, hoping that he may correct my way, that he may be a greater, that I may be a greater advertisement to the world, then I am safe. So God's motive in regeneration relates first to his love. You could never have earned his love. The gospel begins with him and his heartbeat for humanity. He loves your neighbors. He loves your friends. He loves your coworkers. He loves your relatives. And God's love moved when he saw the need of man. We're condemned, destined apart from him to wallow in eternal misery. He saw a condemned planet and he sent a supreme savior. 
that work done in human hearts is the advertisement of God's actual achievement that something real has transcended the darkness that light is present in Christ. Wicked men will run and hide from the light, but God's people will bask in it. And why has he done that? So that the world, if it will go to hell, will have to step over Jesus Christ and the people that he has put his love in. For God so loved the world. I hope that's your heartbeat this year. And I pray that the Lord will make it so in your life. Join me in prayer. Father, what a powerful consideration. And we're grateful for the opportunity to have received your word. And now, Father, as we come before you, Lord, first of all, we would just be remiss if there would be anybody here who has never received the love of God. You have never laid aside your own righteousness and received the righteousness of Christ as it has been offered to you. If you have never done that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the authority of the Word of God, I call you to believe and trust in Jesus, to lay aside your works, lay aside any notion that you can do anything to please God. Jesus has already pleased him. And he's the vehicle through which you can obtain salvation. If that's you this morning and you would want to receive the love of Jesus you never have before, you know that you are not born again, perhaps you've been an imitator. I would just ask you now, would you receive Jesus? If that's you, I just ask you to raise your hand. If there's anybody like that. got you there. For that one who has raised their hands, I'm just going to ask you to pray this in your heart, but this is just a sample prayer. Your real life begins when you Repent of your sins. Whatever the Lord lays upon your heart today, and you begin to walk with him. But this should be a first prayer for you. And I just want to say it so that you can repeat it to the Lord in your heart. But it doesn't mean anything until there's a life behind it. You'll show what you believe by how you live. So in your heart, pray something like this to the Lord if you never have. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve your wrath. I know I am lost without you. I receive Jesus. I receive your offer. I thank you for what you will do in my life. And today, I choose to repent, walk away from my sin and allow you to be the Lord of my life. Please fill me with your spirit that I might serve you all the days that are left of my life. 
Thank you for forgiving my sin. Thank you for Jesus. It's his name, in his name I pray. Now for the rest of us, this is 2020. And maybe there's somebody in your life that you need prayer for right now that you know this message has to be transmitted to them in one form or another. Perhaps you've been afraid to do that. But this is the year that you feel the Lord is calling upon you to be the messenger. So on the one hand, you want to pray for boldness. On the other hand, you want to pray for reception. That the Lord would prepare these people that you're thinking of to receive the message. So on the one hand, Lord, I need boldness and clarity. I feel like I've got that now with a message here. But I also need them to be receptive. If that's you, if there's somebody in your life that you have a burden for, slip up your hand. I just want to pray for you. All right, good deal. Let's keep those hands up. I'm just going to pray for you. Nothing odd's going to happen. Father, in Jesus' name, I lift up each person whose hand is raised, and I thank you for how they are responding to you, their love that they have that flows from you to those that are lost in their life. Jesus, I ask you to make this group by your spirit bold. I pray for you to make their tongues clear. And I pray, Father, for a sense of urgency upon each one. That, Lord, as your people have shown us throughout the Bible, that those who have been called to something difficult went out and did it immediately, the next morning. So, Father, I pray you would open up a time where they will realize and know that this is the moment that eternity can enter into time and space. I pray for that moment to be clear to them and the words to be said through them to be clear from them. And Father, we now pray for those that these hands represent, whether they are relatives or friends or co-workers. In Jesus' name, we would ask that you would work along the sides. You would lead and funnel these people to a decision about you, that it would be clear to them that they must receive eternal life and that they do not have it now. We ask you, God, just to be working and and bringing about a, a complete understanding of that truth in these people's lives. We know you love them. We pray you would save them. And may that be that in the next year we see them even delivered from their sin and brought into the kingdom of heaven and maybe even in this room. Father, may it be your will to do so. We pray you would do that through these hands that are raised, that they would join you in that enterprise. And we praise you and thank you in advance for all you will do in Jesus' name. Everybody agreeing said, amen.